welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Melody Edwards. Ahead on the show, we'll hear about the race for mayor of Cheyenne and how tense it's become. There is um, certainly some negativity in the campaign right now. As Election Day nears, we'll talk about campaign finance and how money can influence voters. Having these groups spending money to send mailers against one candidate or another could change the way voters make their decisions. And a gas leak shuts down the school in a tiny Wyoming town. But for months, it's a mystery where the gas came from. And it was terribly scary for us parents not knowing what was going on. Like, why do they have a workover rig, you know, on our school property? Those stories and more, all coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Melody Edwards. For nearly 150 years, men have been Cheyenne's mayors. All that is about to change after the upcoming election. Two women may be running to become Cheyenne's first female mayor, but as Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard reports, their differences are driving the election. Mayoral candidates Marion Orr and Amy Serdam were friends for a couple of years. Then they each learned the other was seeking to become Cheyenne's next mayor. Marion Orr says they decided to meet up. We had coffee, and I knew that she was considering, and I wanted to be very upfront with her that I was considering uh, the race as well. And Amy Serdam takes it from there. And I just said, okay, let's, let's be sure that we get to the other side and can be friends, number one. And number two, let's get one of us elected. Getting one of them elected is in the bag. Serdam and Orr emerged from the primaries as the top two picks for mayor. And they are both making history, ensuring that Cheyenne will have a female mayor for the first time. But staying friends remains to be seen. The campaign has gotten heated. Amy Serdam says it started on primary night, when she referred to the two of them as girls in an interview. I said, I I can't believe that the community put two girls forward You know, to me, I guess I didn't realize that was an offensive term to some females. Marion Orr took issue with that characterization. I was disappointed on election night when she said, gosh, we've got two girls that are going forward into the election. I feel like that really kind of diminished the role of these two strong women. There is um, certainly some negativity in the campaign right now. That's James Chilton, a reporter for the Wyoming Tribune Eagle, who's been following the race. He says while it's become heated, the candidates' disagreements focus mainly on policy and who would be the better mayor. Based on what their goals are, what their their policies are toward handling Cheyenne's infrastructure needs versus um, investing in amenities, which really has been, to me, the, the primary issue. Marion Orr says she wants to focus on infrastructure, fixing roads, and improving police response time. What she calls the basics of good government. Amy Serdam wants to balance those infrastructure needs with creating new amenities, like a children's museum or a rec center. 
She argues Cheyenne should be a place people want to live. That our kids want to come back, that our millennials want to stay, our professionals, that it's not a place that people settle on. Rather, it's a place that people strive strive to be a part of. Chilton stresses that the decision is an important one for residents, because unlike many other communities, Cheyenne's mayor actually runs the city. Whoever we elect as the city's next mayor is going to have the ability to establish a cabinet, put people in in place underneath them that will be able to help uh, analyze the issues facing the city. Sir Dam is worried that people don't understand there are clear differences between herself and Orr. And it's always still amazing to me when I'm out door knocking that people will say, oh, either way, we're going to win because we're going to have a female. And I'm like, wait a second, there's, there's a lot of differences. They certainly differ in how they want to run the city. But these two might be more similar than they think. They both come from professional backgrounds, are heavily involved in the community, and run in similar social circles. Orr has been a lobbyist in the Wyoming legislature for more than 20 years and argues that has given her an intimate working knowledge of government. So I really know uh, the flavor of the state and how the state's economic picture really trickles down to how cities, towns, and counties and communities like Cheyenne operate. Sir Dam counters that as a nurse practitioner and executive director of nonprofits, she has a broad range of experience from which to draw. With their respective backgrounds, Orr and Sir Dam also have broad networks of potential donors. Throughout her run, Sir Dam received more than $30,000 in campaign contributions, or received more than $18,000. With lots of money raised on both sides and no local polling, it's tough to say who will win. But both candidates recognize they're making history in this all-female race. Marion Orr says Cheyenne is ready for a new chapter. People are excited. They really are. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Caroline Ballard. This story is part of the series Women Run the West, a public radio collaboration exploring the role of women in Western politics. You can hear more stories at womenrunthewest.org. As we approach Election Day, candidates are filing their campaign contributions. And this year, campaign finances are looking a little different in Wyoming. An unprecedented amount of money is being spent, oftentimes in smaller local races. And sometimes that money is being contributed anonymously. Andrew Graham, a journalist for the site Wyofile, has written a series on the changing reality of money in Wyoming politics. He told Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen about what has changed since the Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United decision. Two of them that we've, we're definitely seeing in Wyoming is this idea of nonprofits registered as 501c4s, social, social welfare organizations, being able to engage in what's called issue advocacy, but it allows them to send mailers and pay for ads, et cetera, against certain candidates in the election. And then the other thing we've seen as that rolled down from Citizens United is a removal of a formerly an aggregate limit on how much an individual could spend on campaigns. So donating to candidates, there's always a, a certain cap on how much you can do there as an individual. But there used to also be a cap on how much you could donate in total. So it would limit the number of races you could spend your money on. And we've seen that cap removed at the federal level and then in 2014 removed in Wyoming. One of those phrases that many have probably heard in discussions of campaign finances is dark money. So so how would you describe dark money? Dark money is money spent 
to influence politics, whether that's during campaigns, by sending mailers or paying for ads on one side of for one, against one candidate or another, or whether that's done once the legislature is in session by lobbying sort of think tank activities. And the term dark money arises when this is done through groups that register as nonprofits because nonprofits don't have to disclose who their donors are. So we don't know where the money comes from. This is different from, for example, PACs and even super PACs, which have been talked a lot about nationally and are a big deal because of the sheer volume of money they can spend. But who is donating to those PACs is public record. Is it fair to say these trends are happening on both the liberal and the conservative sides of the election? Yeah, that's fair to say. My reporting specifically focused on this current election cycle where there was dark money, what you would consider dark money activity by a single 501c4 nonprofit on the progressive side that sent out campaign literature through two different groups. So that was the new thing, I think, was this entry of dark money on the progressive side. And on the conservative side, there was less direct mailing that I saw. That doesn't mean it's not going on. Republic Free Choice, which was a group formed by Susan Gore, backed by Susan Gore, the same person who backed the Wyoming Liberty Group. And they had engaged in sending campaign literature in the past, but they didn't seem to do it this election. The Liberty Group is still around and it'll still certainly be lobbying during the legislative session. So I think you can fairly say there's dark money on both sides. So how could these new trends change the election results in the upcoming general election? And did they change things in the primaries? Certainly in the upcoming general election, having these groups spending money to send mailers against one candidate or another could could change the way voters make their decisions. And in the primaries, we definitely saw an increase in certain, on the Republican side, certain candidates who had been in the legislature for a long time were, they faced opponents who had kind of an anti-establishment bent, which is another national political trend that's playing out in Wyoming. And these candidates had money from individual donors that were able to spend large amounts of money. And also mailings were circulated. I'm thinking specifically of a a primary campaign in Sheridan County where incumbent Rosie Berger in in the House faced a challenger, Bo Biden, who has not served in politics before. And their mailings were circulated some anonymously that painted Rosie Berger as having betrayed conservative values. And uh, there's a fair amount of money spent in that election for Wyoming. I actually think Rosie outspent her opponent, but she lost the, the election. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Andrew. Yeah, thank you. When we come back, we'll hear from the Wind River Indian Reservation about voter turnout there and a new Native American curriculum. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Melody Edwards. Wyoming's Native American community is more affected by government decisions than perhaps any other group in the state. Yet low voter engagement among those affiliated with the Wind River Indian Reservation continues to frustrate tribal leaders. Scott Christie reports on an ambitious new program aimed at getting out the Native vote in Fremont County. The Wind River Native Advocacy Center, or WARNA, is a nonprofit that works to empower Native Americans in Wyoming. Mike Lott is spearheading the organization's Every Native Vote Counts campaign. We're trying to provide um, a voice for our reservation and saying that we're a force to be reckoned with. They've crafted a multi-pronged strategy to get Native voters to the polls. 
In 2008, Fort Washakie, Luthi, Ifati, and Arapahoe produced 1,800 voters. In 2016, Warnack hopes to grow that number to 2,000. The bulk of the efforts is a door-to-door, face-to-face attempt to motivate eligible voters. We have our Protect Your Right to Vote cards canvassing in the populated areas of the reservation, and those are the housing projects where about 50 to 60 percent of our residents live. Lott says there's a lot of distrust over the voting process, and his group is trying to dispel myths with accurate information. I think that there, there are, are misconceptions about voting. I think that there's also excuses why you don't vote. Of particular concern are widely held beliefs that tribal ID cards don't qualify for voting, but they do. That police will try to enforce warrants and collect outstanding fines at the polls, but they won't. That convicted felons are forever disqualified from voting. In fact, many can have their voting rights restored. Potential voters are also being told that they can register to vote at the polls on election day. Lott adds that the biggest obstacle is the Wyoming Native American community's often difficult history with state and federal government. Like a hundred years ago, we weren't even citizens of our own country. You know, 50 years ago, we weren't even um, allowed to vote. And then 10 years ago, you know, Fremont uh, County was done deleting Native American vote. Millie Friday serves on the Warnack Board of Directors. She's all too familiar with this change. A lot of our people are hopeless. And, um, and it comes through in why should I vote? You know, my vote doesn't count. It's not going to change anything. It's an attitude that Lot hears as well, but refuses to accept. House District 33 is 65% Native American, and so when you have um, uh, a House District that is majority um, of a community, that you definitely want to see them represented, um, especially because we do not have a Native American in either the House or the Senate District um, right now at this moment. No way is wrong or right which way they vote or not. We're not trying to sway anybody into voting a particular candidate. We're trying to sway anyone to vote in a particular way. It's totally nonpartisan, and we're a nonprofit. We're just trying to get people to vote because I feel like our voice matters collectively. Following months of outreach, education, and involvement efforts, the campaign will deliver a final push on November 8th. We're also, for Election Day, having uh, transportation for all needs. I have four vans, and if they're in your area, they'll pick you up. We are also having Celebrate Your Vote Feast, and we are giving away 2,000 shirts um, for voters. Organizers have spoken with 935 potential voters thus far, but they'll have to wait until November 9th to know if their work has paid off. They've already tallied one important victory, though. The involvement of tribal youth has been a clear bright spot and a cause for optimism about the future. 15-year-old Jawan Willow is one such advocacy center volunteer. He's been knocking on doors because, he says, voting is critical for his community. We are all, you know, together. We're Fremont County, we're the state of Wyoming, we're the United States of America, and most importantly, we're a whole of the world. So the more they see that, you know, we're not just the natives on the reservation, we are one of them, we're their constituents, and we're here to voice our opinions, that's whenever they start listening. For Wyoming Public Radio and Lander, I'm Scott Sidley. Matthew Copeland co-produced this report. You can find out more about the Wind River Native Advocacy Center's efforts to get out the vote at wrnativeadvocacy.org. Staying on the Wind River Reservation, for years now, there's been an effort to pass a bill called Indian Education for All. 
that would make sure all Wyoming students know about the history and culture of the state's two tribes, the Eastern Shoshone and the Northern Arapaho. But the bill has never gained steam. As Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards reports, there's now renewed hope, thanks to a collaborative project between tribal leaders and Wyoming PBS. All right, so everybody has those. Let's go ahead and practice. I say it, you say it, say it together. Yahaiki. Look around Lynette St. Clair's Shoshone language and culture classroom in Wyoming Indian Middle School, and you'll see this isn't the usual Wyoming social studies class. There's vintage photos of famous Shoshone people, a miniature teepee, and the whiteboard is scribbled with Shoshone words and translations. And what the kids are learning is unusual too. The students are reading a speech by Shoshone Chief Washaki from the 19th century. St. Clair teaches them key words from the speech in Shoshone. Happy is Zanisunga. Zanisunga. Well, the lesson plan that I went over today had to do with the October core belief of courage. And courage is one of the uh, values that our tribal elders had brought forward. Uh, many years ago as a really cr critical component to education, you know, in general. One of eight core values the kids will study this year, but many non-Native students in Wyoming may have never heard of Chief Washaki. St. Clair says growing up in the 70s, even her textbooks didn't mention his name. I learned about, you know, Columbus Day and about uh, 1492, and, and I learned about the presidents, but I never learned about the great chiefs that we had. That's why St. Clair was happy to help when Wyoming PBS began developing a series of videos and matching lesson plans to teach students around Wyoming about the state's tribes. In just a few weeks, Wyoming teachers will be able to download these materials off the Wyoming PBS website. St. Clair says in the lesson plans she prepared, she addresses how important the Wind River mountain range is to the traditions of Shoshone people. We as uh, human beings have to honor the earth and um, treat it well. So there's some environmental things that go into the lesson plans. We're tying in, you know, science and technology and so STEM standards. St. Clair says in the past, schools tried to rid Native students of their language and traditions. She says that's why it's so important for such customs and languages to be valued now and valued by all Wyoming students. It's important. You need to know who your neighbors are. That's Michelle Hoffman, the educational coordinator for Wyoming PBS and a retired superintendent from the Wind River Indian Reservation. She says she's been working for years to get the Indian Education for All Act passed because she's observed how hurtful discrimination can be. She says it was something she witnessed when her students visited other schools for sports or music events. And sometimes the treatment our kids received based upon their skin is unacceptable. And that's where I come back to say, we haven't done a good job in this state of educating the people in the state of what the reservation means and how rich it is here. Hoffman says more cultural literacy might reduce that stereotyping. For the project, she's been bringing together elders, leaders, and educators from both tribes to create the six short videos and to make sure they fulfill Wyoming's state teaching standards, like eighth grade social studies or science. Hoffman says maybe the resistance to passing an Indian Education for All bill would melt away if the curriculum is available first. If school districts begin using these materials, 
maybe they'll be more convinced. If you look at Montana, South Dakota, Nebraska, oh my gosh, these, they've been there, they're light years ahead of Wyoming. Why, why are we so far? Well, we're so far behind because we haven't done a good job of educating our citizens of the state. So educate them first and then get That's home. right, that's right. Go around the back door now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do think that the, the efforts that Wyoming PBS has done are going to pave the way to make this a little better success. That's State Senator Kale Case. He serves as co-chair on the Select Committee on Tribal Relations and is a big proponent of Indian Education for All legislation, which he says will go one step further than the videos by creating checklists for schools to make sure they thoroughly cover Native American issues. The, the part we forget is we think that our history begins with statehood or begins with the trappers that came out. No, no, no. Our history goes back to the first peoples. But Case says it's not just tribal history Wyomingites need to know, but also how tribal governments work today and why the northern Arapaho and eastern Shoshone governments are so often at odds. Ask the question, why is that? Do you realize this is the only reservation in the country that two sovereign tribes share the land and the governmental responsibilities? Now that is a very difficult thing. Case says the Tribal Relations Committee will meet to discuss what's next for the Indian Education for All Act at their meeting November 14th. He says they plan to introduce the bill in the next legislative session. As for teacher Lynette St. Clair and her students, Indian education is already a way of life. This month, she turns to teaching the next Shoshone core value, honor. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. When we return, we'll hear about the toxic gases that were discovered this spring at the Midwest School and how they got there. This is Open Spaces. This is Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Caroline Ballard. For weeks this spring, students and teachers at the school in tiny Midwest Wyoming reported strange smells and headaches. Then, in May, the school shut down after health officials detected dangerous levels of potentially toxic gases. But for months, no one could answer the questions, what were the gases? And how did they get into the school? Wyoming Public Radio Stephanie Joyce reports on what happened. For 10 a.m. on a weekday, it's eerily quiet at the Midwest school. Fallen leaves skitter across the parking lot, which is blocked off by yellow caution tape. The only sign of life is the dog barking from across the street. Kelly Garbutt is showing me around. She has two kids at Midwest, and after the school was evacuated, she had a lot of questions. But the summer months ticked by without a lot of answers. And it was terribly scary for us parents not knowing what was going on. Like, why do they have a workover rig, you know, on our school property? What the hell is going on here? Midwest sits in the middle of the oldest oil field in Wyoming, the Salt Creek Field. So there were a number of possible explanations for what was happening at the school, most of them involving one or more of the 100-plus wells within a half-mile radius. But the prime suspect? 
Garbutt points to a patch of recently turned over dirt in the schoolyard with a metal pipe sticking out of it. So this, is, this is the leaking well. This was the leaking well, yes. State records show the well was drilled in the 1920s and plugged and abandoned in the mid-1980s. Once wells are abandoned, they're considered dead. They aren't monitored, and oftentimes they aren't even marked. But if they weren't plugged properly, they can act as pathways for gases that would normally stay trapped deep underground. It wasn't until the school shut down that anyone even thought to check the abandoned well buried in the schoolyard. But now, it's all anyone can talk about. Okay, there you be. Yep, see you later. Across the street from the school is the Big D convenience store, known in Midwest simply as The Store. Inside, Garbutt introduces me to other parents, including Jennifer Sutherland, who works at the store and coaches the volleyball team. Stephanie, I'm Jennifer. Nice to meet you. you. Sutherland says it was scary not knowing what was happening. Then, last month, when the health department released the test results from inside the school, that was scary, too. You know, just because we live in an oil-filled town doesn't mean our air quality should be, that we should always be worried about it. The test results showed that on May 26th, carbon dioxide levels inside the school were 26 times the recommended limit, which made some areas of the school oxygen deficient. Benzene levels were 200 times what's considered safe. Like everyone here, Sutherland knew there were abandoned wells in Midwest, but she was surprised by what happened. There's so many wells in this area, it would take them so long to check it, years, to check every single one of these wells. And the one that gave us the most problem is on the school property. But Sutherland doesn't cast blame. It's an act of God. It's an act of nature. I mean, Except it's not. In fact, it's squarely an act of man. Salt Creek is an extremely old oil field, and a decade ago, to help boost production, companies started pumping carbon dioxide into the field. CO2 acts like soap, helping wash the oil out. But because carbon dioxide is a gas, it wants to rise. And the thousands of wells drilled in the field, all those holes in the ground, are potential pathways for the carbon dioxide and other gases to migrate to the surface. Tom Kropach is the deputy director of the Wyoming Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, which regulates the industry. He says FDL, the company that operates the oil field, took the necessary steps to protect the community. FDL, as the operator now and previous operators in Salt Creek, had a major effort to try to examine these wells and make sure that they were replugged if they needed or that the construction of the wells was protective of the environment and public health. Clearly that didn't work out. Are there potential rule changes that you're thinking about, you know, in order to prevent this from happening in the future? Kropach's answer? No. The current rules we think are protective. Salt Creek has The current leak appears to be fixed. FDL pumped more than 20 tons of cement down into the schoolyard well this summer. The more recent air samples from inside the school are normal. But there's no timetable for it to reopen. A new ventilation system has to be installed to prevent any future leaks from getting inside, and that could take months. For now, the kids are being bused 45 minutes south to Casper. Kelly Garbutt is ready for the school to reopen and confident that when it does, it will be safe for her kids. But she says it's unlikely this will be the last time Midwest has to deal with the effects of a leaky well. They're constantly coming across new wells that were not properly plugged, never been put on a map, so nobody had any idea they were there. And that's true not just in Midwest, but across the country. We've drilled more than three million wells in the United States, and most of those are now abandoned. 
Many are in areas that were once oil fields but are now suburbs. And while CO2 injection isn't happening in most places, wells can still leak gases like methane and benzene if they aren't properly plugged. Few cities and counties have any kind of notification requirements when it comes to building near or on top of abandoned wells. And frequently, there's no indication at all that there's a hole thousands of feet deep that could someday come back to life. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Stephanie Joyce. Fossil fuel companies have a history of backing Republican candidates, but this year's unusual presidential campaign appears to be having a strange ripple effect on political giving, at least from the oil and gas industry. Judy Fays of KUER reports for Inside Energy. The Donald Trump-Hillary Clinton race has thrown the oil and gas industry off its political game plan. Usually, the industry and the people in it favor Republican candidates with their campaign contributions, but this is no typical election year. It's just chaotic. It's weird. The loss of discussion on the issue. Ray Butcher works with the Political Action Committee for Dominion Questar, a natural gas company in Utah, Idaho, and Wyoming. It's bizarre, not only on the energy front, but everything in our country right now is being faced with these two candidates. Butcher's PAC doesn't give to White House candidates, but what he sees in this election is a focus on presidential personalities that's swamping all the races, even the ones he's concerned with. The Center for Responsive Politics and Inside Energy have analyzed the latest campaign finance reports from the end of September and found that the oil and gas industry has given more money so far to Democrat Hillary Clinton than to Republican Donald Trump. That's a departure from the past, considering Republican Mitt Romney received more than seven times as much oil and gas money in 2012 as Democrat Barack Obama. Jeff Hartley spent two decades steeped in GOP politics and now lobbies for oil and gas companies. There's nothing about this race that I would have anticipated, honestly. Hartley wonders why more in the industry aren't backing Trump like he is. But then again, he hasn't, he hasn't tried to curry a lot of favor with him. Oil and gas went all in during the Republican primaries by giving over $1 million to Ted Cruz and $10 million to Jeb Bush. But in the general election, just $500,000 has gone to Trump. Meanwhile, 800000 went to Clinton. It doesn't surprise me that oil and gas or any extractive industries would give money to the Democratic nominee. It makes sense to do that, especially if they're likely to win. I mean, you know, if you're backing a loser, that's kind of money down the drain. Kathleen Sagama is with the Western Energy Alliance, an oil and gas trade group based in Denver. The group gave maximum donations of $10,000 to Romney's 2012 campaign. This time, it's donated just $2,500 to Trump after sitting out the primary. Most of his focus is on congressional campaigns, where the group usually gives around $9 of every 10 to Republicans. You know, a couple thousand dollars to a presidential candidate gets lost in the shuffle compared to a couple thousand dollars to a House candidate, for example, or a senator who is up for re-election. We have to be very conservative about where our resources go. That's especially true during a time when energy companies are struggling with a market downturn and in the case of the coal industry, bankruptcies. Campaign finance reports show that coal employees and their PACs are giving almost exclusively to GOP candidates for Congress and the White House. In this election season, the coal industry has given more to Trump than any other candidate. Sagama blames the Obama administration for stifling fossil fuel production through regulations. We know that Hillary Clinton represents the third term of the Obama administration, so we are not supporting her. Even for these oil and gas stalwarts, Trump's been seen as unpredictable, a wild card when it comes to energy policy. For some, at least, 
If Clinton is Obama's third term, that might not be so bad. Natural gas production's grown immensely under the Obama administration, and some hope the policies that allowed that to happen would continue. Jeff Hartley. If Hillary Clinton wins, I think, I hope that what she has said about natural gas and domestic oil production being a bridge to the future holds true because our state depends on that and our jobs depend on that, our economies depend on that. No matter what happens, Hartley sees a bright spot on the horizon. This has been the strangest, most bizarre, frustrating um, roller coaster ride, and I've never been more excited to have an election year end. For Inside Energy, I'm Judy Faze in Salt Lake City. This story was reported in collaboration with the Center for Responsive Politics. Around 500 people will come together at the Little America Hotel in Cheyenne, November 10th and 11th, for the 2016 Governor's Business Forum. The theme this year is Innovation and Resilience for the Future. Wyoming Business Alliance President Bill Schilling joined me for a preview of the event. Well, first of all, the Governor's Business Forum now will be an annual event. This year, the sub-theme really is Innovation and Resilience, and to tee that up, We have some speakers from the national scene and then local as well. So it should be a very productive session that's informative for those who attend. And by those who attend, it's not just business people, but it is uh, nonprofit uh, individuals, education, government, and uh, general citizens as well. And who are some of those special guests that you mentioned? So the special guest, um, the, the keynoter is Jack Aldrich, who is a global uh, futurist and author. He's written about 10 books, and uh, he's very current on current trends and then peering into the future. And so the reason why I wanted to have him come for us here in Wyoming is that obviously we are in the gap right now. We We are facing some challenges. And so the question is, do you just sort of complain about it and stick your head in the you know, in the sand and the wallow in the mud, or do you try to just move forward? And so the reason why we have Jack coming to talk is to say, get at it. And those who survive and make do and think about moving ahead, they're the ones who uh, succeed, quite frankly. The next sort of speaker is uh, Ian McGregor, and uh, his company is building an $8.5 billion refinery up in uh, uh, the province of Alberta, north of Calgary that takes that really heavy, not very environmentally clean oil in the tar sands and converts it to extremely clean, state-of-the-art diesel fuel, and also with zero CO2 emissions. So this is a major sort of breakthrough. And why I have him is that we've had discussions in Wyoming by way of the legislature and the governor about, well, we have these natural resources here in Wyoming as well. Could we maybe evolve toward a couple of uh, mini, shall we say, industrial heartland-type complexes. So we have him just tee that up, and then we'll have some a panel that immediately follows that. So that'll be a really good one. There are some other speakers that sort of round out the plate, shall we say. Uh, our Congressman Cynthia Lummis will be speaking at lunch that day, and then late afternoon on Thursday the 10th, we have Jim and Deb Fallows, and they are very well-known nationally, for their writings and their insights. And then 
The last major speaker would be on Friday morning to conclude the forum, and that's Mike Allen. Mike is one of the founders of Politico. So Mike is an an insider from the outsider in Washington, D.C. And, of course, he's speaking to us here in Wyoming just a few days after the presidential election, giving his take. So it doesn't get any better than that. puts Wyoming sort of right in the spot in terms of discussions by a great individual person. So those are the national kind of speakers uh, that will be coming to this year's forum. This is a tough time in Wyoming's economy, uh, especially for coal and the oil and gas industries, but it does have ripple effects on other businesses when people begin to leave the state, government funding getting cut, and people having less money to spend. How will the forum address some of the concerns I'm sure Wyoming businesses and business owners have right now? We have three panels addressing that directly. One is called the uh, is sort of the value-added opportunities. Another is called the ABCs of Wyoming's economy. That's being led by President Emeritus Dick McGinnity of the University of Wyoming. And then the last one is a panel called Recalibrate, Focus, and, and Move On. In addition to that, Caroline, uh, we have uh, uh, first thing Friday morning, six of these concurrent sessions. So one's on broadband, for example. One's on community sustainability. Another's on an education initiative that our group is about to launch. So those will be also uh, opportunities for people who come to the forum to sort of roll up their shirt sleeves and talk about some of these issues. And will diversification factor into those conversations at all? Absolutely. Absolutely. In all, in all three panels plus the concurrent sessions. It gets back to what I talked about earlier and what, what Jack Aldrich said, you know, quit wallowing in the mud and just get up making things to happen. I mean, that's kind of the way it works. And uh, there are great opportunities and there's great pride in the state. And we have a good workforce and uh, you, you just have to forge ahead. Let's just put it that way. I've been speaking with Bill Schilling of the Wyoming Business Alliance. The Governor's Business Forum is coming up November 10th and 11th at the Little America Hotel in Cheyenne. Bill, thanks so much for your time today. Great. Thank you. Ahead, we'll wrap up the show with a story on how the downturn in the energy industry is impacting school funding and a conversation about an important mule deer migration corridor. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Melody Edwards. Peabody Energy paid nearly $1.8 million in overdue taxes this week to a rural county in western Colorado, resolving, for now, a serious funding concern for a tiny school district there. Communities all over the country count on revenue from fossil fuel extraction to pay for basics like schools and roads. But with the downturn in coal, oil, and gas, that steady stream of energy dollars is no longer assured. Inside Energy's Lee Patterson reports. Route County Treasurer Britta Horn says that the coal industry has been a good neighbor to this community. She tells me a story about her daughter at the Route County Fair years ago. All our kids are showing animals, sheep, pigs, chickens, steers, all of the above. And in this rural district, those animals are not pets. They were for sale at the county fair. And the buyers? 20 Mile Coal did buy her steer. 20 Mile is the local mine owned by international coal giant Peabody Energy. The company bought the steer, butchered it, and then invited Horn's daughter to their barbecue. And they were eating her beef. 20 Mile Mine employs around 280 miners. Taxes paid by Peabody Energy account for around 30% of the South Route School District's entire budget. 
But now, Peabody Energy is in bankruptcy. So this relationship is changing. Last summer, Peabody failed to pay taxes in four states, including Wyoming and Colorado. When the company offered payment to Route County in August, that didn't include interest and fees, County Treasurer Britta Horn rejected it. That move wasn't entirely popular. Fast forward to October at a tense public meeting with the Board of County Commissioners in Steamboat Springs. Chairman Hermansiski, I truly appreciate your opinion. Horn responded to questions and comments about the Peabody tax situation. Some argued that it would be better for the county and for 20 Mile Mine if Horn had just taken the money so that the interest wouldn't keep piling up. Others disagreed. If I don't pay my taxes on time, I would get the same treatment. That's local resident Laura Case. And, and I appreciate that because why is a corporation different from, you know, little Harriet homeowner? Now, just a few weeks since that meeting, Horn has accepted Peabody's latest payment, but wouldn't comment on any details related to interest and fees, saying only that the terms of the agreement with the company are confidential. The fallout from a weakening coal industry isn't isolated to Route County or to these past few months. Peabody Energy is one of a handful of major coal producers to declare bankruptcy over the last couple of years. Companies have laid off employees, some have cut worker benefits, and because U.S. coal production is way down, so is state revenue from it. And so for Horn, this one Peabody situation really goes beyond the process of collecting taxes. I think the bigger picture is is making sure that nobody is so dependent on all these taxes. Part of the problem of being dependent on resources is that you don't control your community's future. That's Luke Danielson. He's the president of the Sustainable Development Strategies Group, which works with communities and coal companies around the world. Your community is at the mercy of economic forces that are essentially managed by people who you don't know, who are far away and over, over whom you have no control. Danielson thinks communities need to diversify their own economies. And that needs to happen before the first shovel of coal is even dug up, which he calls planning for the end of life. These revenues are a one-time endowment. There's only so much coal in the ground. Darcy Moore has been talking about diversification since becoming the superintendent of the South Route School District three years ago. When Peabody didn't pay its taxes on time in June, the district wasn't going to be able to pay its bills, including payroll. So we have to find alternative revenue sources. Raising taxes on residents is a tough sell. The school district has high poverty rates as well as a lot of students on free and reduced lunch. So she's going after grants, pushing for school funding changes at the legislative level and working on ways to attract new taxpayers to town. Moore admits diversifying a tax base is complicated. But, you know, you can't give up. You keep, you keep finding ways to repurpose ourselves. and The flow of coal dollars doesn't just matter in coal communities. When Peabody didn't pay its taxes this summer, the South Route County School District drained Colorado's Emergency Education Reserve Fund, leaving almost nothing for the other 177 school districts across the state. Now, Route County will be paying back that emergency fund. For Inside Energy, I'm Lee Patterson. Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues. The Wyoming Game and Fish Commission recently acquired a key area in the Upper Green River Valley. 
It will remove a bottleneck that could have harmed mule deer migration and was donated by the Conservation Fund, who worked with others to purchase the property. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck spoke with Mark Ellsbury, the senior vice president for the Western Region with the Conservation Fund, about why this is so important. Back in 2011, uh, the University of Wyoming's program, the Wyoming Migration Initiative, identified uh, a key migration corridor in Wyoming's Upper Green River Valley. Uh, They dubbed that the Red Desert to Hoback Migration Route, and it's a route where roughly 5,000 mule deer travel annually over 150 miles from high up in the Hoback River um, Hoback Rim, Upper Green River Valley area, back on down to the Red Desert to spend the winter months down there. And they turn back around and do the same migration back up in the spring and the summer to forage in the high country. And the deer have been using this for about 6,000 years, but it was just uh, in 2011 when the University of Wyoming identified the corridor, was able to map it and really understand better uh, the route that the deer were traversing there. As a follow-up to that report, several years later, um, they identified, the University of Wyoming identified uh, critical choke points, uh, threats, bottlenecks, and issues that could jeopardize the migration route itself. And top of that list was a property right at the outlet of Fremont Lake, just behind the town of Pinedale. Uh, about 365 acres, private land uh, that was available for development. And actually, interestingly, at the time, it was listed uh, on the open market uh, for sale. So that's kind of how it all started. And Luke Lynch, who was the Wyoming State Director for the Conservation Fund at the time, had been tracking the work of the Wyoming Migration Initiative and the group that had come together around the Red Desert to Hoback uh, area in particular. And he became aware of the bottleneck that had been identified as the number one priority, this property listed at the outlet to to, uh, Fremont Lake. And so Luke did as he did frequently for the Conservation Fund and in his other conservation work in Wyoming. He pounced. Luke moved very quickly and uh, secured valuation, did due diligence, got a contract, and and put a real estate uh, transaction together to purchase that property off of the open market uh, in, in April of 2015. And so at that time, about a year and a half ago, the Conservation Fund became the proud owners of that bottleneck property, uh, which was so critical uh, to maintaining the corridor that had been identified by the University of Wyoming. This just seems uh, very critical. I I know the Game and Fish probably really appreciates uh, this uh, getting passed on, but, you know, this is going to be something that's not going to limit access, but it's just going to simply limit development. That's correct. Yeah, recreation and public access will be allowed on the property. Um, the Game and Fish is going to uh, manage it for uh, passive recreational use out there. Uh, there will be fishing, hunting on the property. There will be some seasonal closure to protect wintering elk. There's a lot of elk that move down onto this property uh, during the winter months. And uh, I think the Fish and Game Department's going to have a seasonal closure, similar to what they do at the Soda Lake Wildlife Habitat Management Area, uh, to protect the wintering elk that are there. But, I noticed that there's still some work you'd like to do in that area to maybe improve the habitat a little bit. Can you discuss that? 
Yeah, so there's a couple of things that were critical to uh, improving the property once the conservation fund acquired it. And the first is fencing. Uh, the property had been fenced both for livestock grazing and to keep the wintering elk out of uh, Pinedale. So we've deconstructed and removed most all of the fence, several miles of fence, some livestock fence, buck and rail, barbed wire fence, standard stuff, and then some significant eight-foot-tall elk uh, fence to keep the elk out of town. So we've re we deconstructed all that, removed it from the property, and then we've gone and reconstructed several miles of fence uh, on a border, on a boundary anyways, that will keep uh, the elk up on the property and, and out of town and out of neighborhoods, uh, but also allows for the free-flowing migration of the deer. They were having to go under the fence previously, and they were getting pinched off into the water and, and really necked down through the old fencing. So we've redone all the fencing, removed most all the interior fence, and otherwise worked to enhance the property from a habitat standpoint. And as we move forward, we're, we're going to continue to look at that property with Game and Fish along those lines uh, and treat the property for weeds. Weed control uh, continue to be an important part of what we do and, uh, and also uh, some enhancement to the sage-grouse habitat, do some drilling and additional planning to help benefit that over the coming, say, two to three years. Mark, before I let you go, uh, they're calling it, of course, the Luke Lynch Wildlife Habitat Management Area. Uh, Luke died a, a little over a year ago. Would you like to tell the audience just a little bit about him? Well, Luke was a special man. He, uh, he had a deep passion for conservation in Wyoming. He worked very hard for several conservation organizations, including the Conservation Fund, to protect working ranch lands and large mammal migration routes. That really was what he was passionate about. A lot of his work manifested itself right there in the upper Green River Valley in very close proximity to the new wildlife habitat management area. And the fact that this was the uh, active, most active project Luke was working on when he passed away. He had completed about 60% of the the project. He'd acquired the uh, property and, and raised some of the funds. And the fact that the partnership was able to complete this on his behalf, I think, makes it really fitting uh, that the commission, Wyoming Game and Fish Commission, agreed to dedicate the property in Luke's honor. It's very special, uh, a great legacy for a lot of the people who worked with Luke and knew him, and certainly in a very important conservation accomplishment for the migrating mule deer. Mark Ellsbury, a pleasure. Thank you so much, and uh, we do wish you well with this endeavor. Great. Thank you, Bob, very much. Thank you for listening to this edition of Open Spaces. If you'd like to hear the entire program or individual segments, go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. You can also sign up for our podcast on that website or get it from iTunes. Anna Rader is our web editor. Don't forget to join us Tuesday night starting at 6 for live election coverage. We'll have national and local results as well as analysis with Wyoming Public Radio News Director Bob Beck. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News. Music